You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Welcome to We Are Libertarians for this week. I am your host, Chris Spangle. Uh, to my left is uh, Greg Lenz. Greg, how are you? Doing well, Chris. How are you? I'm well. Brett Bittner joins us. Brett, how yes, are you? I'm doing quite well. It is almost the weekend. I know. Well, I'm, it's, I'm already done for the weekend. Put in my uh, four hours. I'm, I'm ready to go. <laughs> uh, and uh, joining us is Chloe Anagnos. I, good. I said it right. You said it correctly. How, how Greek are you? I am half Greek. Okay. Half Greek, half German. So right now it's a little uh, interesting. <laughs> oh my. Especially in the... Is there a war within yourself? Just a little bit. You're struggling with the greater <laughs> jihad. Uh, now, <clears throat> you uh, you said your name was what before you ch- your family changed it? Before my grandpa changed it, it was Anagnostopolis, which I believe is like 17 letters. So imagine that, that, like on a jersey... On the SAT, it's rough. <laughs> You'd get like 478 points, and you get 400 for spelling your name right. I learned that in Blue Chips. Yeah, that's yeah. right. N- Nick <laughs> Nolte approach to the SAT knowledge. Right. <laughs> you get 200 points for spelling your damn name right. <laughs> that's what he missed. He misspelled his name. <laughs> God damn it. Uh, that, I love hearing... Uh, I, I have a friend named Kostaki Economopoulos, okay. and like that shortened... And I just love hearing Greek names said. Say, say your name again. Chloe Anagnostopoulos. Oh, or Anagnos. Awesome. Yeah. I'm so excited. That made my day. Uh, <laughs> all right. Uh, so we know Brett. Yeah, now you, there's no, yeah, I, I need no introduction. Brett, uh, when I benevolently decided to leave my position at the Engelhart Group and the Advocates for Self-Government as their marketing guy, uh, I, brought, uh, I decided to troll the Engelhart Group and the Advocates... And uh, now I am trolling anyone who ever orders the quiz, because, Brett, you have a new title with the Advocates for Self-Government. Uh, the last time I was on, I think I had... You had just title. got it. I, I got forgot, it. so yeah. say it again. I'm the Executive Director for the Advocates for Self-Government. Uh, we've moved from Cartersville, Georgia, to Indianapolis, Indiana. Okay. Um, and uh, we're pretty excited to be in our new space. Yeah, you're in downtown on Mass Ave. Uh, very right, trendy. Right, right very, across... Very, very cool. Yeah, we're across from Brew Burger. Mm-hmm. I feel it's just, I could feel the freedom lifting. It's just There's, very free. Oh, very freeing. Smells yes. like liberty. Yes, much that's, better than That's not liberty. <laughs> uh, now, <clears throat> Brett, uh, you, you went on, and so, Chloe, you moved up and you took Brett's job with the Inglehart Group and... In a roundabout way, the advocates, it's really confusing. It is kind of confusing. I know I took his office, if right. that helps. My office. How was the transition? Your that's my chair that I let Brett sit in, so, even after I left. So I have your chair, your office. L- let me be benevolent again. <laughs> you may have my office and chair now. Oh, thank it you. It is now Chloe's. I appreciate it. <laughs> Hear that, Brett? Where do you find your role? What role should you do you best fit? Mm-hmm. That's huge. In, in the bureaucracy, and how can you do it to your uh, most effective ability rather than the ability of personally satisfying? I think it, it first starts, and James and I talked about this yesterday, when it comes to outreach, because James does a lot of great outreach. It's just different outreach than what most people would do and what a lot of leadership would say. Uh, we don't want James being our representative, but James is unafraid. Like James doesn't have fear to go out and talk to people. And I think so much of outreach and political action and really everything that leads to success in life is about knowing your core values, knowing who you are, being unafraid to speak, being authentic in what your goals are, not trying to be manipulative, not trying to be uh, controlling or awful, uh, and and setting appropriate boundaries and goals and not saying, you know, I'm going to run for governor of Indiana as an independent and I'm going to win and there's nothing that can stop me. I mean, because the, the people that showed up to run for office as libertarians, and, and you want to win. That's the goal. The goal in politics is to win your election. But you also have to have realistic goals. So maybe, maybe winning, winning number one, adding two percentage points number two. <laughs> yeah, and anytime you know? your goal is external on something you don't have concrete, you know, absolute control over, right. it's... You know, if that's that, I would tell anyone that that is their goal going in. That's a that's a bad goal to have. Um, right. If you look at the campaign of uh, Andy Horning for Senate campaign, when Richard Murdoch laid the largest egg that's ever been laid by a Republican senator or Senate candidate in history, 
he did an incredible job of not whatever whatever when that happened and Richard Rurock said um, you know made the logical conclusion that if you know rape is part of God's plan that was what he alluded to Andy didn't bury him which is really like even on. like you think bleeding out of your whatever is bad but yeah, and that's something Rick Santorum's battled too. I mean, anyone right. that doesn't believe in the rape or abortion exception fights that, and they mm. use it's part of God's plan to defend that position. Is that's what you run into? Um, but Andy, literally in my parents' neighborhood, who are lifelong Republicans in a uh, donut county, um, they were so open to Andy's message because Andy handled it so well. He showed extreme class in saying, you know, coming to Richard Murdoch's defense and not doing what the Democrat was so yep. willing to do. Because the Democrat was probably going to win at that point anyway. Um, Richard just wasn't a great candidate. But when the Democrats just seized all over him, they looked so bad. They looked like vultures. Right. And Andy, by having that opportunity come up and presenting himself so well, he won so many Repu- uh, Republicans that were a little bit disenfranchised and uh, no longer really identifying with the hardcore attack of the Christian conservative wing of the Indiana Republican Party. I mean, he's got people that now are considering Ron, or like Rand Paul as their nominee in the Republican primary. Yeah, because what Andy said is, I know Richard Mordock. I've, I, I don't know him well. I just know on our exchanges, but he seems like a very nice man who made a mistake, and he's a human being, and we all make mistakes. And if you want to vote for him or not vote for him based on that one gaffe, then that is your choice. I would much rather you look at me and what I stand for, but I don't think that we should uh, vilify a guy because he said something in an in an environment that is very nerve-wracking. It is very, very intense to do a debate. And I think by doing that, by showing humanity, showing um, that he's a good person, because Andy's a great person, that he ended up getting a lot more votes. So I think the first step in being successful at outreach and libertarianism and connecting with people, you have to be able to know how to connect with people. Absolutely. And if your personal relationships are a mess, you're probably not going to be great at connecting with perfect strangers. You know, and I think you have to really work on yourself and know yourself and have self-confidence and not be insecure. Everybody has insecurities, but if you're, if you're walking up and I'm walking up to you at an outreach booth and my every thought in my head and every fiber in my body is going, I'm going to make a fool of myself and this person's going to judge me and they're not going to like me. You're probably not going to make a great connection. No. You know, when you, when you're reaching out, um, the most important thing to me is to be genuine and honest. Um, second to that, I would say be really nice. That's one of the things that we see in the political sphere that, really isn't around anymore. Everything is about scoring a political point, uh, having that bumper sticker slogan that you're just going to use over and over and over again. Um, But at the end of the day, we're all people. We all want to have a meaningful connection with other people. There are a couple people that want to live in a bunker, you know, in the middle of the desert. But for the most part, I think that people want to have a genuine connection with somebody. And if you aren't able to make that genuine connection, it's very difficult for you to be persuasive. And to have to open somebody's heart and mind to something that they may they may have never considered before, and if you're if you're not doing it in in a nice way, you're certainly going to turn people off or the majority of people off. Um, and you know the way that I look at it is I'm looking at how the majority of people are going to accept accept something. Yeah, smash. Uh, <laughs> but. But I know that there are people that that are totally cool with the Libertarian Macho Flash. You know, there's a whole movement. Explain that. Okay, so the Libertarian Macho Flash is something that uh, Michael Cloud talked about um, in Secrets of of Political Persuasion. Um, And it's where you basically take the most extreme stance that you can, and that's what you lead with. So um, his example was at a dinner party, and this is on his audio tapes. Um, which I have actually listened to more than once, um, but where he talked about uh, someone attending a dinner party and part of the conversation turned political. And the person there said, oh, we're going to talk about politics? And he says, F the state. That's, that was the, the lead-in for seven people at the table who'd never met a libertarian before 
that was their first impression of a sure. libertarian. And so because... Sort of like, uh, I, I don't know about gun rights. I believe everyone should own a nuclear weapon. <laughs> exactly. And, and when you lead with that, that libertarian macho flash, that very extreme position right out the gate, number one, you're alienating the folks that are there. You're the first impression that they've ever had, and you're going to temper that impression for the rest of that person's life. Um, and it takes a lot of work if they do encounter somebody else to kind of bring that back from the ledge. I know that there are some libertarians that like to use that because they feel that it brings people in and it may, but it's a very small percentage. People want to have that connection that I talked about earlier. And the way that you do that is you build rapport. And one of the best ways to build rapport after you've introduced yourself and you're talking and the conversation has progressed beyond greeting is to listen. And that's one of the other things that's not happening in politics today. Because we're so quick to try to score that political point or use that bumper sticker slogan that we're programmed to use, we're talking about an issue. Um, you know, if we're able to listen and we're able to listen to the concerns, you can actually apply a libertarian solution to everything, to almost everything, to get an outcome that is desired. I think that we all want to have a very well-educated society. I think that we all want to have uh, an end to homelessness. I think we all want to have people that are prosperous. I think we all want to have peace. It's just the means by which you get there. And if you are abrasive at the very beginning of that interaction, you don't have the opportunity to find out what that person's core issues are. You don't have a way to present the libertarian solution because you've turned them off right away. By the way, in describing the Libertarian Macho Flash and that dinner party, the person who did that at that dinner party was Michael Cloud. Really? And his, he learned from that. I've done it. I've, I've had conversations where, you know, I, I'm not proud of it, but it is, you know, it's the way that some people reach out. And unfortunately, in the Libertarian world, because we are so few in, in the overall percentage of, of people, um, we are that first impression. And... That may be what got you, but it's not going to be what gets the 97% of people who don't think in a libertarian way first. Yeah. I, I don't know how much I should say here. Um, All of it. I, about a month ago, uh, did I mention on air or off air my mental breakdown slash spiritual awakening? You didn't. Or you did yeah, earlier today. today on yeah. today, yeah. I just found that. Well, I am a very functional. Obviously, I run a very successful podcast. <laughs> I mean, uh, such high quality guests that you get too. I know. Thank you for being on, Chloe. Anytime. <laughs> and I just found that a lot. I was having trouble with some of my personal relationships, and I just realized, like, and I just was getting mad because after the divorce, things just kind of went crazy. And I was, uh, I just was like, "What is?" I finally sat down and thought, "What's the problem? Things are not going well for me." And I'm blaming everybody else. Maybe it's me. <laughs> and as I start to, uh, as I started to take account, uh, take an account of my life, and uh, talking to friends like Greg, and our dear, 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 dear friend Hannah Drazich, who has a velvet touch when it comes to coaching people, she said, "No, you really." Been <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I wasn't connecting with people on a real level. I was more worried about getting whatever the goal was like instead of likes and shares likes and shares and attention and all this other bullcrap and finally just decided you know what i'm not going to do anything i'm not going to have goals for a little bit and instead of like like sitting here and instead of talking and waiting for one of you to finish so i can begin talking so you can hear how brilliant i am i started to just listen and listening to people has changed my life because it's it's turned it around instead of me interrupting going you know yeah i really struggle with this thing yeah i had that too nobody like that's rude <laughs> and so it um it i'm connecting with people on a much better level because i'm just being more authentic i'm just being more honest i'm not like when you're when you try to please everybody you end up being dishonest like, because you're not being honest with what you uh, actually truly believe. And I found that through through my work in the political world, I was sitting there 
calculating, listening to every single word, breaking down every little twitch, every little language, examining everything that the person was wearing, and trying to formulate the strategy of manipulation so that I could infiltrate your mind to persuade you to what I think you should believe. As opposed to truly just looking the person in the eye, listening to what their concerns are, and then saying, yeah, you know, well, libertarians believe. As opposed, And it's just... I think you were we, waiting for your turn to speak. Right. Waiting for my turn to speak, to share uh, maybe something that I've learned, or to ask a question so I could continue to listen. And when you ask another person a question and you listen to what they have to say and then you ask a follow-up question, that's called a conversation. And libertarians a lot of times are not good at conversations. Uh, we are not good at looking you in your eye. We're not good at waiting for you to finish talking. We're we're waiting for you to stop talking so we can start talking at you. Yep. And we have, because we feel awkward, because we feel insecure in doing outreach, I found that libertarians love, I found in my candidates that they had two things. And Brett, back me up on this if you agree. They didn't think they knew enough about the libertarian philosophy. And they didn't think that they knew enough about the political process so therefore, they were not perfect messengers, and so they were afraid to ask, be, uh, act because they weren't perfect. So they were going to wait to act until they were perfect. Oh, that's not my experience at all. Really? Yeah, the exact opposite. Okay. They felt that they were the end-all, be-all when it came to libertarian philosophy, and they felt that despite the work that has been done by those before them and the lessons that they have learned, that the person who's running still knows better. They're the anomaly. Right. Yeah. Sure. They're, they're the anomaly that can win it with uh, Facebook posts. I certainly had those people. Right. But that was the majority that I encountered. Yeah. The majority that I encountered were, were people who were just afraid to act. Right. And that's why I loved Melissa's. If you haven't listened to the podcast with Melissa, she's a former dominatrix. And you talk about overcoming your fear in life. These people go to Melissa and she walks them around and like they dress up like women and they cross dress and then they go to order a Coke at McDonald's and that's the first time they've ever been in public in, in drag. And it releases their fear and Melissa did it to release her own fear. And I think that's why we focused on a lot of this stuff recently because outreach is scary. Like you're walking up to somebody it's talking a about stranger. It's a complete stranger and you're talking about your deeply held personal beliefs. That's scary. Mm -hmm. But I think libertarians have to have more courage. And, Absolutely. And not be afraid to say, I don't know, I don't have an answer. Well, and that's one of the things when, you know, there are little things that you can do to help you with that. Um, when we were at Pride earlier this year, instead of having the table at the front of the booth, we put it at the back. Right. You couldn't sit down. You couldn't wait for them to come to you. So you were put in the awkward position of having to stand and go to people. That was by design. It was one of the things that I tried in Georgia and worked and it, from a data perspective, it was phenomenal. We had one of the best outreach events we've ever had. Um, and it was because we were pushing people out of their comfort zone and pushing them to talk to others. Now, Chloe, you've run a, su a successful campaign. So sure. when, when you go out and persuade people, what are things that you've done to persuade others that you've seen work? I think the biggest thing is, at least in student government, is going up to the just the random kids that are sitting at the atrium food court saying hey my name's so-and-so have you ever heard of student government before usually they'll say no and you say and that's why i want to talk to you because you obviously have no idea that your student fees go into this co-sponsorship fee that if you're in another organization that you can use it here's my card here's a handout i hope you vote and on the back this is the platform that i'm running on that kind of thing it's Trying so you to don't target. even do. It's a nice icebreaker. Yeah, you're not yeah. even doing. Um, it's not even a hard push. Or, yeah, yeah, it's not a hard push at all. You're not mm -hmm. saying vote for me because I believe in this. You're saying vote for me because we're spending your money anyway. Right. Absolutely. And I think a lot of students, you know, don't understand that. And even on the national level, a lot of people, oh, my tax dollars pay for this. So how did you sit down and figure out what you wanted to say? How did you prepare your material? Prepare your speech. So when, when you walked up to those people, did you have an idea of what you were going to say? Had you practiced it? I had practiced a little bit. Um, I was fortunate that when I ran in 2013, I had um, a lot of experience in speech and debate from high school. 
Um, but I also had a friend of mine that was going to become a speech and debate teacher that actually worked with us. Um, and we just kind of crafted that real quick 30 second elevator speech because the elevator pitch, right? Because yeah. when you're going up to stu- I think students, especially it's like, Hey, I have 10 minutes to eat lunch and look at Facebook. Don't bother me. You know what I mean? So it, uh, turned out to be pretty handy. So how did you decide what was the most effective message? Oh, I think it was we're spending your money anyway. Right. Because when you look at students now, especially my generation is going to have what, like $30,000 in student debt, something like that. Minimum. Oh, minimum. Right. It's very easy to come up and say, hey, did you know 663 of your dollars go to the football team? Did you know that this amount of money goes to this? So you should definitely take advantage of it. And it worked. Did you ever get backlash to that? Because a lot of times the organization spending that money don't like the sunshine and to... uh or that to be put under inspection. You know, they don't want that $663 to be mm-hmm. going to the uh, football team. Did you ever get backlash from the organizations involved? Or was there ever a, move- a counter-movement almost that said, hey, our money's going towards this, and a group of students coalesced around, around a common cause to stop the money from going there? I personally don't remember one, but I also think that there are a lot of students that are very lazy. Yeah, people in general. Um, people in general are very lazy. Um, I remember, I think it was last year, my senior year, it came out that there, I think the student fee that goes to to the football team is around 660 some odd dollars. And I know that that um, was very publicized in our student media and also in our Muncie media. And I think the star has picked it up a few times before. And there are a lot of students that are very upset about that, but hey, sports is one of the best ways to market your team. Um, well, when you guys had your undefeated football it. season under Brady Hoke, I mean, yes. that got Ball State on a national level that people at the time were like, where is that? Oh, yeah, what is that? absolutely. And then, sure enough, people were, I mean, everyone kind of became a fan. They wanted mm-hmm. Ball State to be undefeated. And then before that, and that, this might have been before you were uh, a Ball State fan, but in the early 2000s, IU's assistant basketball coach, Tim Buckley, mm-hmm. was the basketball coach at uh, Ball State. And they were playing in a Hawaiian tournament early with Duke, UCLA, and Kansas. And it's when Bonzi Wells was there. And they swept everybody, all top five teams, and just showed up like out of nowhere. And all of a sudden, everybody was on the Ball State bandwagon again. Right. And those are the two times that I can remember Ball State getting national public press Positive, you know, I don't think you guys haven't had the issues that IU and Purdue have had of the negative national press. No, fortunately. Which is great. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's even more of an advantage. And then, but then though, does the student say, I don't want that money? I mean, do they even have recourse to say, I do not want 600 and some odd dollars being given? I mean, no? they can complain about it on social media and they can write letters to the editor. But, but at the end of the day, what a lot of people don't understand is that. When I was a student, I could go to any athletic event I wanted for free. Mm-hmm. If I went to an IU basketball game, it would <laughs> cost me, what, $75, something like yeah. that. So at the end of the day, Ball State, I mean, I was saving money mm-hmm. by paying that $660. And I mean, it has to come from somewhere. But a and lot it's basically of, an all-sports pass. Right. It was an all-sports pass. And a lot of students don't understand that, hey, if you don't like it, don't go here. You can go somewhere else. Yeah. So how did you deal with... Um, personal rejection so when you walk up to give your message and you inevitably get shot down or or, or like maybe what was the worst thing somebody said to you and then how do you deal with that i specifically remember um the first few days before our election started before you could actually like go online and vote and i remember seeing this girl that i um had lived like she she was on my hall when I was a freshman or whatever. And I said, Oh, Hey, so-and-so did you know I'm running? This is my card. And she said, Oh, I'm voting for your, the other team. It's like, Oh, kind of, uh, hit me a little hard. But at the end of the day, I kind of realized like, okay, I've got more work to do. That's one person I don't have. So now I have to make it up somehow. And you're still alive. I am. You mm-hmm. managed to make it through that tiny rejection, didn't you? Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. And you went on to win, didn't you? I did. Yeah. So, I think sometimes we fail to put some things in perspective. So if somebody is mean to you or if somebody turns you down or shoots you down or says, I'm a Republican, I'm not voting for your libertarian bull crap. Mm-hmm. You know, you're all crazy conspiracy theorists. They're, you know, you're going to get rejected. You're going to have people that don't want to talk to you. You're going to have people that don't want to be bothered. But you're probably one out of ten times, would you say? You're going, when you're out canvassing and talking to people in an event... 
you're going to have some really awesome conversations. Oh, absolutely. And mm-hmm. if you get bogged down by the one bad conversation, or if you get drawn into an argument with somebody you're not going to win with, you're going to lose out on those great conversations. Those people that you can convert. You know, that's it's the the biblical uh, theory of don't cast your pearls before swine. Why would you give pearls to a pig? They don't want them. They don't use them. They can't use them. They can't appreciate them. It's sinners, salvageables, and saints. You, you go to the saints, you, you inspire the saints, you go to the salvageables, you convince them, and the sinners you leave alone. Because there's no profit in arguing with somebody who is never going to have their mind changed. And yeah, it's fun for you to sit there and argue, and sometimes there is value in arguing with people uh, because it sharpens your, your sword. But for the most part, don't waste your time getting drawn into arguments if you're rejected or if they want to, to pick a fight. There's no point. Well, right. as as economically minded as libertarians are, we should recognize the idea of sunk costs. And there's a certain point where you do have to cut bait and you do have to end the conversation because, like Chris said, you're not going to be able to change the mind of the quote-unquote sinner. No. You should be focused on the salvageables. You you inspire your, your saints, and, but... 80 to 90% of your time should be spent on the salvageables. And you, you know, there, there are people that you're never going to change their mind. That's fine because you know what? Not everybody is going to become libertarian. Not everybody's going to have an idea that, oh, yes, we should be free. We should be prosperous. We should be peaceful. Things should be voluntary. That's not, there are people that they, that's just not going to work for them. It's too much of a, like a, a, uh, a shift mentally. I mean, it's too drastic of a, you know, of a move. And and this has a lot been candidate focused. And I think not everybody, not everybody's designed to be a candidate. That's not everybody's best role. You know, I see it like we were talking before as there's the candidate and then there's like what Brett's role is. And then, you know, what your role is, the brand ambassador. Well, I think there's a lot of people who do outreach booths that a lot of this applies to. It's not just candidates. I think if you're out giving the world's smallest political quiz at a pride parade or at uh, whatever event, you're going to have to talk to people. Oh, absolutely. And you should be talking to people. Right. And even if, if that's your role, if it is a public-facing role or you're at a booth doing outreach, I think the goal of the person at the outreach booth is different than the goal of the candidate. Um, if I'm the libertarian candidate, my goal is, to, is an external goal, really. If my goal is the outreach, it's really more about even – you know, it's tough at an outreach booth. Anytime you're trying to even get someone's attention, it's hard. Mm-hmm. And you're never going to get someone's attention if they come up and it isn't relevant to them. Sure. You know, the emphasis has to be on them. And I feel like, I mean, just even having a pamphlet of information is a bad idea because then you're, that in and of itself is a broadcasting. You're broadcasting to them what you believe. Mm-hmm. You will get so much more attention time from that individual if you can get them or if you can get them to open up about what's bothering them what's their main concern what are their main issues and then instead of just saying well this is how libertarians would fix it you know most people are smart enough if you say it's like the epa if you say all right listen the epa was responsible for um, a mistake they made and ended up releasing toxic chemicals in an abandoned mine that ended up flooding a colorado river and a serious issue what since the organization we've funded and created in order to protect us from such events has shown itself to be negligent what is an alternative and you help that person you know start to formulate in a response to that and say well what would you do in this case obviously step one try to prevent minerals coming into the water and toxifying your water supply what's the proper uh what are the proper protocols to do that how would you do that how is that done how do we do it now and if you can get them into a conversation about the how... So, the Socratic method. Yeah, the Socratic yeah. method. They're going to arrive at a totally different endpoint rather than saying, well, we'll elect politicians that appoint people to bureaucracies that can be politically influenced with money and then have different directors and overseers who have no experience in such fields. That's probably not the optimal solution to fixing the EPA. Right. The optimal solution is having people involved in the community that drink that water every day that are showering in that water that kids play in that it water waters and their crops it it is their yeah that's, and that's what we're seeing now with the navajo nation is they may not be able to irrigate their crops because that is the water supply even though they're saying that it's minimal damage adverse health effects yeah right. but yeah just like the you know the gulf oil spill 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, these organizations have, have have stopped serving their purpose, and so you have to begin to ask, why do they exist? And, you know, anytime you – like, just because it's federal government, the idea is that there are these grand overlords that are extremely smart and are the best and brightest and that they have all the solutions that they will send to you and then have the Colorado Field Office, office implement is backwards. It has to be ground up because – they're, they're the people that have a vested interest in living there and surviving there. One of the um, reasons I'm a libertarian is because, as you heard if you listen to the Abdul episode, he challenged me to defend my positions. Mm-hmm. And so all my Rush Limbaugh talking points didn't hold up when questioned by somebody who knew better and had more experience, more knowledge. Um, and, and it starts to erode. So I think using the Socratic method, asking questions, leading, knowing the destination, but leading somebody down that path, you know, in an honest dialogue, is perfectly valid. Is Chloe? Is there something that you once really strongly believed that somebody else changed your perception? I mean, is there? Um, and how did that change? So is there anything, it doesn't even have to be political if you don't have a specific political example, but I mean, is there a belief that you've held that somebody helped you see a different way and what was the process of that? I think probably one of the biggest ones was that, I'm trying to think, we had an instance where we had someone, speaking of trolls earlier online, (laughs) we had someone that when I ran again, bringing up this example, just commented on something that we had on Facebook and said, hey, your page is just really bad. Like, you know, you guys, the majority of you are journalism, marketing majors, but, you know, I really don't even know what you stand for. Mm-hmm. And it was one of those things where I had to message that person and say, okay, I know you're a student, and this person, I had no idea who he was, and he actually met with us after I engaged him a little bit, um, became friends with him, and he came to all of our debates and said, okay, this is how you have to end up marketing yourself. So it was one of those things where I had to take a step back and say, hey, you kind of have to listen to other people, and especially... Right. You know, just be humble about it. Yeah. Be uh, be willing to change. Oh, yeah. What about you? Uh, I know you're always right. Always. <laughs> Chloe, always have been. Chloe was complaining about that before you got here. Yeah, that's fine. You know, I am always right. Um, no, I actually did have uh, an evolution of my position um, changing sides on uh, immigration. Mm-hmm. Um, I was very much a closed borders person. Um, and it took hilarious considering that your family was an immigrant, a, a, a family that immigrated here, like not even what, 70 years ago. Right. Right. Yes. My grandfather was an anchor baby. Yes, right. that's true. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I did hold at one time a very closed borders view. Um, and it took seeing someone's personal relationship, um, that I worked with and I was friends with, um, his boyfriend was from China. And could not come here other than for education. He had all kinds, all kinds of degrees because he was continuing to get education visas and stays so that he could get more degrees. But no one was willing to sponsor him to work. And at the time in Georgia, there was a nursing shortage. And he was a nurse. But he couldn't find a job because nobody was willing to sponsor his visa for him to work here because you have to sponsor them for the – you basically have to guarantee that for the entire time they're here that you will employ them. Right. And it wasn't something that could be easily fixed by marrying someone because it was two dudes. At that time, that wasn't something that was happening in Georgia, and I'm honestly surprised that we haven't seen more – pushback on the marriage license thing there like we have in Kentucky. Um, But at the end of the day, I saw the struggle. I got to know Scott. Um, I was, I was, and, and he ended up moving to Canada because they have a much easier immigration, immigration system. And, you know, back and forth, it was a situation where he couldn't go back to China being gay. They would kill him. Yep. That was the part. That's a bad time. Right. So, so your choice is a good reason not to go back to China. Exactly. So he could go back to China and die. Um, With their polluted rivers and everything. He could try to uh, continue his education, you know, continue more while he waited to get something, you know, try to find a job. And, um, but at the end of the day, he had to move to Canada and, and their relationship didn't survive that move. Hmm. Um, But I, I got to see it firsthand and it was, it took probably three months of seeing it in person um, 
and having that connection to somebody who's facing something that I was absolutely dead set against that changed the way that I looked at it and said, you know what? There is a reason to have freedom of movement, not just in goods, but also in labor. Looking at it from a very libertarian, you have a right of freedom to travel. I th- it's all... It, the. Yeah, Ernie Hancock is right. The answer is always freedom. What was the question? I think for me, more than anything, as what has changed my political viewpoints is uh, just getting older and becoming more mature and accepting that we're all human beings and shedding off all these preconceived notions and... You know, I've talked about this before. Maya was a huge influence on me over the last two or three years of seeing somebody struggle against just false constructs of society, as Maya would say. You know, somebody who is who is trying to just be an individual, live their life in the way that they see fit, and is punished because other people have, uh, they think that that person, that Maya ought to That's live. not the way it's done. Right. That's not how we do it. And... You know, we we are so quick to live other people's lives and to let our family expectations or political expectations or church expectations or whatever mold what what we want to do. I mean, that's part of freedom is personal freedom, and it is political freedom. It's being free in every area of your life. And as I have come to understand that, becoming a libertarian really helped me see that. Because before that, when I was a Republican, I really wanted to control everybody. I wanted to be that central planner. I wanted to guide people to the best outcomes in their life. And as I have become a libertarian, I have learned to love and appreciate what it means to be an individual, not only within myself, but also within other people. And Maya and I don't share values in in certain areas, uh, but I love Maya nonetheless, and I want her to live the life that she wants to live. Yeah, and not yeah. be not be um, punished for sure. for personal choice, and th- just having empathy for other people. We're going to have someone on who um, you know, like with Woody uh, in episode ninety one of the show. Uh, you hear Woody's story, and you feel the pain of losing his daughter at the hands of a government that doesn't care, that lacks all humanity. A hundred people came into contact with his daughter, and. One person spoke up and said, your daughter's dying. You need to do something. And it took two weeks for him to finally get to Rachel, and by that point, she had passed away. Uh, we're going to have somebody on uh, who is a victim of domestic violence here in the next two or three episodes. And the government does nothing but punish them, the victims, and hurt them. And they're not there to protect the family. They're not even there to protect the perpetrator. They're just there for bureaucratic red tape so everybody can look like they've done something, but people are being hurt. And I think as I have started to... Uh, what, what shaped my point of view more than anything was being the executive director of the Libertarian Party of Indiana and then being somebody who is in a, a public role as a libertarian and hearing people's stories and talking to people about the true cost of government and feeling that within my soul and saying something is deeply wrong here and we've got to do something about it because it's broken mm-hmm. and it's hurting people. And government does not help people. It is hurting people when you actually get down to talking to people about their stories. Yeah, and then it's not it was – and that was its intent. I mean that's not the, the case at all. You know, government was ne- you know necessarily created to – so everyone had the explicit guarantee to get out of a bad situation or to have a hand up or, you know, that last line of protection. And it's any, like anything, though, like society, society turns things into an abstract. When you're not engaged in your community on that level, that personal level where you see the pain or you experience the heartbreak or you experience the domestic violence, it turns into, okay, well, that's where we have government so that person has, you know, can get out of that scenario. <laughs> And that turns it into an abstract right. thing instead of something you live and, and, and experience. And the ultimate result, though, is resentment, especially when you get into a, a place like now where we spend so much on it and we commit so many resources to it that are ineffective or end up being resources spent for a problem that doesn't, doesn't exist 
that is ultimately taken care of in churches, communities, families, that type of place. Um, there's a resentment that grows by the people funding it. And so then that turns into a villainization of us versus them. Mm -hmm. And then you, it's rare to encounter the moderate today. You know, we've, we've become very, uh, very isolated in the information we take in and then the analysis we choose to read and accept is correct. And so you have people you don't even identify with whatsoever, purely because you're politically affiliated with one party or the other. And like with the libertarians, that's why I know Brett, um, when Brett ran for school council, you guys repaired a bench, right? Um, there was a, like a bench or a part. I thought you did something. You remember we that one time I, you did a good thing? Oh, <laughs> There may have been more than one time. Um, one of the things that we did... Humble brag. <laughs> we, uh, we did uh, school supplies. Yeah, and a school book supplies. We did school supplies and a book drive. Um, I saw through my work with the school board that uh, literacy was a big issue. And it was access to books. That was the problem. Um, in the ward where I was, um, it was the poorest ward in the city uh, from a socioeconomic perspective. And it wasn't a matter of and this is going to be hilarious to Chris, but it wasn't a matter of how many books were in the home. It was how many homes per book. Okay. I mean, Chris has just unloaded his library. I don't know if he's talked about that a lot or a little. Uh, no. or, yeah, we've talked about it. I've sold off all my books. Um, but it was, a, it was a situation where it wasn't like, well, there's a hundred. I can't read, Chloe. Oh, good to know. <laughs> it, was, it wasn't a situation where there were a hundred books per household. It was that there were Six houses 17 per houses per book. And to me, I saw an opportunity for us to help. And what we did was we had a book drive. And yeah. it was all voluntary, but it was something that I had seen. It was an issue that I, uh, in talking with the principal and talking with the teachers, and it's that, you know, hey, and we, we timed it around Christmas. Um, so it was something that the kids could take home so they would have access to something yeah. for those two to three weeks. Because otherwise, they wouldn't. Yep. Yeah, and that's uh, if you've read um, Outliers, and they were talking about why mm -hmm. uh, Malcolm Gladwell is talking about why... You, that's a good book. It's a good book. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's a great book. And they're talking about why poor, uh, low-income families versus high-income families, the education rates are different. It's not because the rich white kids are smarter and the black kids, the poor black kids are dumber. It's because the parents have the resources... Right. to continue their education in times uh, like Christmas break, like summer vacation, whereas the low-income families have working parents and they're just, they can't get to it. They don't have the time and they don't have the resources. Right. They're too focused on making the ends meet so that there's a roof over their head and, oh, if they get to read, then awesome. Every human being is, you know, we, we it's about starting out, it's not about starting out, it's, it's I don't know, sometimes our view is, is we view, um, we compare everything. It's always comparison, comparison. It's like, uh, it's we look at it and we go, well, poor means dumb. So, oh, yeah, but guilt so, by association. But then yeah. we got to take care of them because they're poor and dumb. Yeah, well, then yeah, the That's liberal entitlement we know better and social justice yeah. warrior. Yeah, yeah. Well, so you were about you were saying something about Brett and well, I was going to say yeah. like with the libertarian with libertarians in general, I've always thought you know it's pointless to go out. I mean, it's pointless to go out and shake hands and say this is what I believe because I'm a libertarian. You know, it's way it's a way better use of resources to say we're going to rebuild that house in this, you know, rundown community where we have several supporters, or we are going to have a libertarian food truck that goes around. You can deliver anytime, anytime someone in the neighborhood's having a a crisis. Mm -hmm. You know, being by showing that it can be done without an agency or oversight, and you can fill in the gaps, and that the libertarian party is that that filling in of the gap where we don't have to have a license from the government to help somebody and that it can be relied upon even though there isn't the explicit guarantee of government. It's almost like Greg listened when I was on the Lava Flow podcast where I was talking about walking the walk. Yep. Where you have to show... I was going to say it's like he's listening to Jesus to oh. care of your fellow man, but okay, you go ahead and compare yourself to Jesus. Hey, now, you're the one that's making that comparison. <laughs> but that was actually one of the things that we did talk about um, when I was on. And it, we're so quick to outsource responsibility because we see it, and Greg mentioned the key word for me earlier, it's intent. Somebody has a great idea. They think it's going to help society. They get the law passed or they get the ordinance done or they, you know, the, the beginning of 
that solution starts. And they think they're done. <laughs> Libertarians look beyond that. We look at the outcomes. We look at what's going to happen. We look at, okay, well, it's going to help this person, but it's going to hurt these six people because they're involved. The hidden costs. And so we're looking at those underlying factors, and it really does come to an, an intent versus outcome. And Friedman was one who talked about that quite a bit, where he talked about how you can't judge something just based on someone's intent. You actually have to see it through. Um, and so when you show, like Greg was talking about, and you're walking the walk like I talk about a lot, um, you are that shining libertarian example. Then you can point to your peaceful, voluntary solution that involved no coercion, no force, and most importantly, no government. No paperwork. To, to provide a solution to a real-life, real-world issue for an individual, a family, uh, a neighborhood, a community, a town, a county, a state, a nation. You can make that difference, but you have to be able to show, you have to be able to point to the things that can be done in the absence of government. But because we are so quick to outsource that responsibility to government, we celebrate when there's a law that's passed that takes care of Supposed no child takes, left behind. No child know? left behind, yeah. or or um, the way that they have the uh, uh, Amber Alerts. Yep. You know that's supposed to say that was supposed to be the panacea, and it was going to end all of our our searching for kidnapped children. Mm -hmm. And we're in. We're now it happens so frequently that we turn off the alerts and we stop looking and we stop caring because it's an abstract. Somebody else is doing it. Yeah. There's a system in place. We don't have to worry about it anymore. I'm sure they're very smart and they'll have it handled. When, when you hear the stories, and I've lived this story, unfortunately, um, and when you hear the story of, of the person we're going to have on, the Department of Children's Services is meant to save children. Hmm. And it does nothing but put children at risk and hurt them. And it serves no purpose. It should be abolished. And... There, there is no doubt in my mind about it. So I think in all of this, what it comes down to is, as a libertarian, you have to love the individual. First, you have to love yourself as an individual and do what you want to do as long as you're not hurting other people. Be free to live your life as you want to live your life as long as you're not hurting other people. It's when you start hurting others that it becomes a problem. Next, you have to start loving other individuals and connecting with them and talking with them. I lived in a bubble. I isolated myself. Uh, I was married, so it was kind of like a, prote a, a protective cocoon. <laughs> Greg was there. He knows. Uh, not in the marriage. We weren't married, Chloe, with each other. It was just... Oh, okay. it was, it not that there's anything wrong with that. Not, but you, but right. you can well, now, luckily. Yeah. yeah. And, but I just... I lived my life from a mountaintop where I was right and I told how, uh, everybody else how they should live and it should be freedom. Well, that doesn't make any sense. And over the last couple of years, I've learned to love being an individual and connecting with other individuals. And as I have done that, my politics has changed, my personal life has changed, everything about me has changed. I'm a happier person because I'm truly connecting with others. When you, one of the things that I have learned is that it is wonderful to be listened to. <laughs> it, I have never grown more because I have so many great friends that just listen to me and they don't try to fix my problems they just give me encouragement and they listen and so many people in the voting public when you go out and do outreaches they just want to be listened to they want to vent their frustration about the political th they don't want you to interrupt with the solution unless they ask for a solution they want to talk and vent and get it out and they just want you to listen because they're so tired of not being listened to. Because they're so tired of getting spit lines back in their face and uh, all the bull crap that these Congress, congressional candidates are. It's, they just want to be heard. And if you're the person that is listening and they feel like you're, that you care, uh, you know, Woody came to us because Woody felt like Rupert would listen to him and Woody would care. And then when I picked up the phone and I started talking to Woody, I wasn't afraid to hear his story. I wasn't afraid to connect with Woody. I wasn't afraid to talk him through this issue, give him advice, and then have him come on. He wasn't afraid to tell his story. It's a deeply emotional story for him. It's very difficult for Woody to tell his story. 
Um, and I thank God that he has the courage to do that because people like Woody will change the system. Because when you hear Woody's story, you feel it in your soul. As opposed to hearing him in a th- three-minute soundbite on the 11 o'clock news, and you're sitting there going, man, somebody really should do something about that. That sounds horrible. And we've, we've delegated that responsibility to somebody else ought to do something. And, uh, you know, the Christian church, our faith groups, uh, Jewish organizations, they're, they're as guilty. I'm a Christian, so it is... I, I, let me talk about my people. If, if you give over responsibility for caring... Uh, 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 liberal Christians, and I'm a Methodist, so trust me, I've got my own issues uh, with people, uh, with my church. But they want to look at the government and say, this is the compassionate solution. And you know what that does? That means that you are just writing a check to the government and letting them not take care of the problem, as opposed to going out and showing love to other human beings. So if you want to be good at outreach, you first have to love the individual. You have to start listening to people. You have to start connecting with others, asking them questions, and having an experience with somebody else. Put down your cell phone. <laughs> you know, and there's this big race to have like all this technology for outreach. What's the best way that we can connect with people? How many apps can we build? It's Food not drive. about apps. You know, mm-hmm. exactly. Brett did a book drive. Yep. Because when Brett actually had the courage to get up off of his and to get out there and start talking to people, Brett recognized a need in his own community because he had the courage to get out and act. And he wasn't afraid to do it. And then he saw a need. And then he started telling people about the need. And then other people felt like, oh, wow, this really sucks. I can do something. Because Brett broke it off into small, bite-sized pieces. I don't need you to come up with 1,300 books. Right. I need five books from you. Yep. And five books from your neighbors. Mm-hmm. And spread the word on your Facebook. And start spreading it that way. Break it down into sizable pieces. And through that action, Brett was able to make new friends, connect to people, and give people a good perception of what it means to be a libertarian and what it means to be a good person. Not that you're a good person, Brett, but you at right. least give the impression. You know, it, it, it's, all it's all about perception. It's all about, it, it's all about pleasing people. <laughs> so I think that's, that's really what it comes down to. And I know that this is probably one of our more Oprah episodes, but I don't think that you can... Wait, are we all getting a car? Oh, my God, yes. You get a car. You get a car. <laughs> I hope you get so. A car. She's 23. I know she needs a car. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, I, I just, I think from all of our experiences, there is no other way than to connect with people on a real level and just listen to them. I think that's the best way to do outreach. There is no other real way. You know, you can we could sit here and tell you go to advocates.org, the, right. the advocates.org, and buy lots and lots of materials. Yes, that Chloe Chloe will write you a note in every single box. That I she will. Shows you. Yep. Uh, <laughs> buy them now. Uh, if you are a We Are Libertarians listener and you actually do order something, let them know. Let, let's let's make Chloe work, all right? Yeah, yeah. please well, She do. just took the quiz today, right? No, like, no, 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 no. No, previously. Uh, and you yeah, took yeah. the quiz and scored Libertarian for the first time? Mm-hmm. Do you remember like roughly how pure you were, like what your percentage are you points a 100, were? 100, 100? No, I don't remember. I don't think I paid attention to that. I you just take saw it you were Libertarian? I just looked at the little chart. It's okay. Trap. Well, that's good enough. Uh, all right. Uh, well, this has been an episode. It had bread on it, so next time we can do better, right? I enjoy Bittner. I know. I, I like, like I Chloe like, on. I like Chloe more, but Bittner, you're all right. All right. Well, thank you for joining us here on uh, We Are Libertarians. We appreciate you joining us on this episode. And as always, we promise to do better next time. <laughs>